The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. A little while ago, a not-so-secret meeting happened. Over 20 solar industry experts and 3,000 solar pros came together for one of the top events of the year. If you're feeling FOMO, don't worry about it. You don't have to miss out. Aurora is making all the talks available for replay on its site. You can hear from speakers like CEO of Sonova, John Berger, Chief Innovation Officer of SunPro, Mike Latch, and Executive Director of Calsa, Bernadette Del Chiaro. Head over to empower.aurorasolar.com to listen. We're going to have a link in the show notes, but hurry, the talks are only going to be available until July 9th. The Energy Gang is brought to you by NLX, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. NLX serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization. NLX is a trusted partner for solar installers and developers, providing energy storage, DER management software, and smart electric vehicle charging stations to increase project value. Learn about what NLX can do for your business at NLX.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. There are many different ways to decarbonize the economy. Some might cost less, some might be more reliable, some will bring different benefits to different industries. But what pathway will bring the most value to the most people who need it? This week, how to measure and maximize the equity outcomes of the clean energy transition. Plus, what is happening with the infrastructure bill? Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. She's in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, Catherine. How are things in Arlington? It's great. It's getting a little bit swampy because we're hitting summer here in D.C. Are you finally going back to Capitol Hill and, and meeting people in person now? No, not yet. And actually, it's so much easier doing virtual meetings anyway. You can be so much more efficient. I I really prefer it. Catherine is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions, of course. And our guest is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It is Dr. Destiny Nock. She's an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering, as well as engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. Destiny, hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on the show. How are things in Pittsburgh? They're good. It's always interesting with the weather over here. We had a hailstorm two days ago, and then yesterday we had a rainstorm, and today it is sunny and beautiful, and you would never have guessed that it was hailing in the middle of June. <laughs> so Dr. Nock has a technical background, a doctorate in industrial engineering. Is that right? Yep. Industrial engineering and operations research. But you are also very passionate about applying that expertise to human outcomes, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about in this episode. Um, so what does that mean to you exactly? So when I think about the human side of engineering, the biggest thing that comes to mind is that at the end of a technology, there's always going to be a person. And we often lose sight of that as we are moving through our STEM degrees, our science, technology, engineering, or math degrees. We're really focused on you know, getting that technological rigor, understanding all those equations, how to build these big, large machines. And we forget that people are going to use this at the end of the day. And so you know, we want to make the world a better place. We want to have people without the access they need to technologies. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure that everybody has access to those technologies and that people can afford those technologies. And so that human side is, you know, when if people are going to use this and if we deploy this in, you know, the most economic way, the most equitable way, how is that going to impact society? How is that going to impact 
the way people interact with people, right? Like we saw with the internet, it changed, it revolutionized the way that we interact with people, just even podcasting and the way we get our news articles now and Facebook and how we connect with people. And we want to make sure that we do that with all of our technologies so that when we get to this future, this technological future that we want to be in, we are not in a place that is, you know, with massive social injustice. Did that come naturally to you? Was that part of your philosophy from the get-go or did that come over time? I think that it came over time. So when I first got into college, I really wanted to be a high school math teacher because I just wanted to help the kids, right? I wanted to make somebody's life better. I was a lifetime Girl Scout, you know, and they really ingrained that one in me. Um, but I also wanted to go to college with no debt. So I got a scholarship for engineering and my dad was an engineer and he was like, yes, one of my kids is going to follow in my footsteps. And um, I'm going through engineering and I'm trying to figure out like, what do I like about engineering enough to actually keep passing my classes, right? And to get the job that my dad says I need, right? He wants me to have a good job, support my family, not have to go live at home with him (laughs) one day. And as I'm going through it, I studied abroad in Malawi, Africa. And when I was there, my my professor told me that all a lot of girls were dropping out of school when they started their periods. And I was like, oh, well, I'm sure people used to do something before disposable pads. She was like, oh, they're too expensive. There's never enough. And I looked up and I found on hillbillyhousewife.com that it said people used to like make their own reusable ones. So I was like, oh, like here's a pattern. Let's just make reusable pads. And then my my advisor was just like, wow, like I knew that you were an engineer to the core. And I was like, what? I do not want to be an engineer. Like I want to be an educator. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a person that like, you know, helps the world, like change, helps the kids. She's like, no, honey, engineers are problem solvers and you love solving problems. And so that's, I think the first time I really saw myself as an engineer. Um, And I just wanted to be the engineer that didn't lose sight of like people's problems, right? Like that wasn't just building cool things because people wanted to use cool things, right? (laughs) I wanted to build something that somebody actually needed. And one of the things that Malawi really showed me was that sometimes you need new technologies and sometimes you need to show people technologies that we've already had and just help them use them in a better way. What a great story. Well, we're going to spend the second part of the show exploring Destiny's work measuring energy poverty and mapping out the equity outcomes of decarbonization scenarios. And as we'll hear, she's pulling together data that can help us think about these outcomes in a different way, in that human way. First, let's take a quick look at what's happening with the biggest policy story of the year. All of a sudden, the infrastructure bill is at an impasse. President Biden broke off talks with Republican Senate leadership recently after some pretty strong disagreements over priorities, including climate spending. And now progressives and climate groups are all wondering, are we going to lose another historic climate bill? This is our one shot, right? And if so, how long will it be until another chance emerges? Just today, Senators Bernie Sanders and Ed Markey said that they will not support the bill as it stands because a lot of climate provisions have been stripped out. Catherine doesn't actually believe we're going to lose a lot of the climate stuff, um, but doubts are swirling. And I want to get a read on what is happening because this is one of the most consequential pieces of policy um, in recent years. And if it actually passes, probably in a generation. So, Catherine, how worried should we be? Where are we in the process? 
So put down your paper bags for a minute, y'all. Start breathing into them. I got we got this note from Donnell Baird with all caps. It said, "I'm panicking. What's <laughs> happening?" And I just said, "Pace yourself, my friend. It's okay. Let's let's uh, take a deep breath here." Um, so here's the thing: if you watch really carefully, the president has not given up any of his climate priorities. The one thing he did do was to say, all right, we'll move all of the hard infrastructure, the like surface transportation stuff, we'll move that off of what I want to do on climate, because that seems to be the piece that could be bipartisan. And surface transportation bill sailed through committee in the Senate. That's generally a very bipartisan piece of legislation. So, like, let's have a bucket for bipartisanship. And let's work on that bucket, y'all. All of you who want to work together. And right now there are five Democrats and five Republicans. Five Republicans is still five Republicans short of being able to beat a filibuster. But it is a start. So those are the Democrats that are also more moderate, more in need to show that they're bipartisan. And that is how they are by nature. So they're continuing to work on things that are bipartisan. At the same time, remember, there's a whole nother sector of the Democratic caucus, that's Bernie Sanders, Ed Markey, but also people like Senator Martin Heinrich, who've said, no, we're not going to support anything that doesn't have climate. Okay, great. So there is another track that is going to be very focused on climate. And that track will have to go through the reconciliation process that only needs 50 votes. But see, because you have these two tracks, you have a track that's bipartisan, and you have a track that is not bipartisan, that's going to be very climate focused and very much about spending money um, on those programs that we all care so much about and that Biden has not backed off of. But those two tracks are parallel, and they each satisfy very different elements of the parties. And they have to be working very much in sync because you don't want to lose leverage on one or the other. So unclear which will go first. They're definitely both moving at a fair clip so that you could potentially see everything done by September. Um, And that does not mean that the president has given up on his priorities. It simply means that there are going to be two different pieces, one that will be bipartisan and satisfy that part of his caucus, and the other that will be much more progressive and include all the climate provisions. How do they merge together? How do those two tracks merge together? Those tracks will not merge. Parallel okay. lines do not intersect, is what my <laughs> understanding is. Um, so those will pass separately. And remember, the bipartisan one still needs to get permission from um, the mar- minority leader McConnell that his party can, his the folks in his party can vote for it as as many as want to can vote for it. So they still need his permission. They need permission on both sides. But they'll then be able to take something home and say we got something done. But if you move that alone, then you have lost leverage on getting the other one. So, you know, the the good news is that Majority Leader Schumer controls the the schedule on the floor of the Senate, and he's not going to let one go without the other, without a very tight agreement to do the other. So I think um, that is a really good sign. I think they have not backed off of the president's priorities, nor has the president. And I think they can get both done. They're going to be through very different mechanisms, and they'll have different types of votes on them. But I think they'll be able to get them both over the finish line. So why do we have people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse getting on Twitter and saying, what is happening here? I really feel fear for the future of this bill. Or Senator Ed Markey saying the same thing that 
all of a sudden their priorities are getting stripped out. It's very confusing. Oh, that's very important that they do that, though. That strategically, you have to have the progressives in the party saying we have to continue to do this because they need to support the president. They need to support all of those climate voters that voted for majority in the Senate and House to work on climate. So they have to do that. That is a very good thing. You want to keep pressure on them. You want groups of all kinds that care about climate and the future of an energy transition to keep putting pressure on leadership in the House and Senate and the president because you want to show that you really, really support that. So I think it is very important that they do that in the same way that it's important uh, for Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema that they work on something in a more bipartisan fashion. Destiny, if you think about the priorities in this climate infrastructure bill, what are the components of it that have to stay in for you? What are the must-haves? So in terms of the must-haves, when I'm thinking about the infrastructure bill, I really just want to make sure that it's not losing sight of the need to address the compounding effects of the multiple crises that we're going through right now. We have the COVID crisis, the climate crisis, and the racial justice crisis. And each of these are so important to address. And we're at this you know, momentous time in history where we're actually, you know, having something proposed that can address these. And when I'm thinking of, you know, what what do we need moving forward, we just need to keep in mind that infrastructure is that thing that no one notices until it's not working, right? It's hidden in plain sight and we don't value it until the roads have potholes, we're in the middle of a power outage or our bridges have crumbled and we can't get to work or we can't, you know, get across the river. And When we think of the rural communities, most of the time we're not driving through those. And those are the communities that are often left behind in these, you know, large scale infrastructure transitions. So we want to make sure that we, you know, keep them at the forefront of our mind, because when people get left behind, that's when they get really angry. They feel very slighted. And we want to reach that equitable future that we all have desired. Okay, so what would that look like in terms of actual policy priorities? So for policy priorities, I really admire Biden's promise to provide every American city with 100,000 or more residents um, with high quality, zero emission public transportation options. Public transportation is so vital to making sure everyone has access to high quality jobs so they can support their family. We want to make sure that the clean energy transition People not only have access to clean air and clean water, but also have access to jobs that can help them provide a decent living for their families. Yeah, and I think, Destiny, I totally agree with you. I think those programs could fit into a bipartisan infrastructure bill. I really do. I think that those same problems are common in red states and blue states, in urban settings and rural settings, and think that that's something that people could come together. Now, they may not be able to set the dollar amounts to it that you would really like to see that can really scale. But that's also the job of the budget resolution, which is going to provide this separate big piece of funding for climate. So I think you could have this um, bipartisan deal going along to really set up some of these programs in a way that's really smart and addresses a lot of these equity issues, but then have a lot more funding come through in, in a different wave or on that parallel wave. All right. So you've alleviated some of our concerns, Catherine, that there's probably a pathway forward for some of these priorities. But what if we lose our chance? What happens politically? Like, do we do we even have a chance to get some of these important climate provisions back into other legislation? Or are we facing a similar problem like we did in 2009, 2010, when the Waxman-Markey bill fell apart? 
Yeah, so we're in a very different place than we were then. Um, a lot more people, there's a lot more grassroots support for action on racial justice issues, on equity, on climate issues. And so there's a, there's a lot more support. Back then, they're just, it, it, it had not been activated nearly the way it is now. So that is a real voting issue. And I think a lot of this hinges on elections, right? I mean, elections uh, really drive outcomes. And right now, the Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And that might not be for much longer. So this is pretty much a, you know, once in a pretty long time chance to get some things done because we don't know what will happen. So remember, voting has a lot to do with this. There are voting rights provisions right now that are percolating through as well that are a whole different work stream than I work on. But those will all have potential consequences. And so, you know, when we think about when is our other chance, you know, we always have chances to do things that are bipartisan and move the needle a little bit at a time and get us authorizations for programs that hadn't existed before. And so that's all good. And then the administration can do a lot on its own, too. They're able, they've been doing really well. And I think regulation will continue within the administration sending market signals. So we'll continue to move forward. But the funding, the big investment, this is the chance to do it. I think we will. I think there's some things that are going to be trickier to navigate, like a clean energy standard, which is a priority of the president. I don't think they're giving up on it. I know Gina McCarthy said we may not get everything we want out of a clean energy standard. So if you think of a, of a clean energy standard like an RPS, a renewable portfolio standard, where you say utilities have to reach this amount of renewables by this amount of time, we can't get that in a reconciliation bill. And it's definitely not going to be bipartisan. But what you could do is try some other ways to get funding put into place, carrots put into place to really incentivize and make up the difference of moving from dirty to clean, that whole transition and incentivizing that in the right way. So I think it can be done. It may not look the way you would often have a policy look, but that's just because we can't write policy and reconciliation. You have to make it be about taxing or spending. So you have to make sure it looks like that. But I know smart folks like Leah Stokes and the Evergreen folks and uh, you know, there are other people. I'm spending a lot of time talking to the people writing it too. So there are ways to get it done. It, As Gina said, it may not look like what you thought it would look like, but that doesn't mean we won't. it won't have a big impact. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Have you ever wished you could just peek inside the boardrooms of the best solar companies or maybe sit in on that sales strategy call of the top performing reps? Well, we can't get you in that room, but we can get you pretty close. Hear what the top solar executives, sales experts, and policymakers, including the CEO of Mosaic and director of sales at Baker, had to say at Aurora's annual Empower Summit. You can listen to all the replays from the summit for a limited time. Head over to empower.aurorasolar.com. Those talks are only going to be up until July 9th, so go over there and watch them now. The Energy Gang is brought to you by NLX. Project developers are seeing spiking demand as businesses and utilities seek more renewable energy. NLX helps solar partners get more revenue from their projects by adding flexible, distributed energy assets. NLX installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. NLX's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter by accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions. Find out more about NLX at enelx.com. 
We can measure the energy transition in any number of ways. The hundreds of millions of solar panels and wind turbines installed, the gigatons of carbon reduced, the number of jobs created, or the number of lives saved by reduction in air pollution. But how do we measure the equity outcome? Dr. Knox's work is focused on exactly this, creating new models for energy systems planning that factors in positive social objectives, not just cost or reliability metrics. So any decarbonization strategy is a de facto justice and equity strategy, as frontline communities will hopefully see the most benefit when you start to shut down dirty power plants or dirty industrial facilities or change how you site infrastructure. But how do we maximize that benefit? And how will different pathways determine the outcome for low-income citizens, for communities of color who are disproportionately impacted by pollution? Let's let's begin with your work on energy poverty. How do we currently measure it now and why why is that inadequate? We currently measure energy poverty by asking people what percent of your income do you spend covering your energy bill? And if this percentage is above 6 or 10%, then we would typically define you as experiencing some sort of energy poverty and this is a financial form of energy poverty. But another branch of energy poverty is actually, can you even, do you even have electricity in your home? Can you use it? And so that's when we were thinking about reliability and power outage risk. That's what people think of when they first think of the Texas disaster, right? Just people couldn't even consume it, even if they wanted to. And there was this large disparity in, you know, people looking across the street and seeing, oh, well, my neighbor has lights. Why don't I have lights? I haven't had lights for three days. Um, And then there's this other part of energy insecurity where you may actually feel like you can't even afford to turn on your lights or your heating system or your air conditioning system. And so that's like the insecurity there. And then the largest part of energy poverty is about the supply concerns Typically, people think of developing countries where they may not have access to lights or they may not have a power plant in their region. And so they just don't even have an electricity connection in their home or in their town. So there are these multiple forms of energy poverty. The largest is, do you even have a power plant in your region? Second is, okay, if you have a power plant, does it reliably supply electricity to your home? And then the core of it is the financial poverty risk of, can you actually afford to consume all that you need to consume? And so how are you measuring this in a different way? Like who is hidden in energy poverty? In the U.S., we typically focus on that cost form of energy poverty. And with that percent, what it really misses is people's behavior because people are super smart. If you are not going to go into debt covering your energy bills, what you're going to do is you're going to start wearing your jackets indoors in the winter. You're going to turn that thermostat down in the winter. You're going to, you know, tell your kids, hey, like, turn off those lights, turn off that TV. Like, why are you guys using so much much electricity? And you're really going to try to, like, reduce your consumption as much as possible. Now, some people actually reduce their consumption to super unsafe levels. They may be trying to use their ovens to heat their homes. We have seen reports where some people actually burn trash in their homes to heat their homes. They use space heaters, which have a large fire risk. And so there is this like feeling of inability to consume electricity. And so what my group is doing is we're working with electric utility companies to actually take in household level electricity consumption data and say, well, who is not consuming as much electricity as we would have expected them to consume? So then explain how that would work. Uh, Paint the picture for us. So what we do is we take a household's data. So if I was looking at your electricity consumption for one year 
and I actually took how much electricity you used across the year and plotted that against the outdoor temperature outside, then what we would actually see is this huge U-shaped curve because you're going to start using a lot of electricity as it gets colder because you're heating your home. Then you're gonna like start decreasing your consumption. It's gonna get really warm outside. You might open your windows, right? You're gonna turn off all the AC. And then as it gets hotter, you're gonna start increasing your electricity consumption again. So that that minimum point, that bottom of that U, we would actually say that's the first point at which a household would would consider turning on their air conditioning unit. And so then what we do is we actually separate those by income group. So we have the lowest income group where they, on average, are waiting until it's about like 70, 75 degrees outside to turn on their air conditioning units. And the highest income group is maybe turning on their air conditioning units at like 60, 65 degrees on average. And keep in mind that these are mean outdoor temperatures. So the temperature outside is actually a lot hotter than the mean average temperature. And so we find that there's actually like about a five to eight degree difference in terms of outdoor temperature for when people would even just start to turn on their air conditioning unit um, for our study area in Arizona. Okay, so once we've identified this, it clearly changes who we target with, I don't know, weatherization programs or rebates for cooling equipment or rate structures. So how do you use this information to construct policy around it? What, what does it do to change the way we're thinking about this issue? So one of the things that I think it really brings into the conversation is that there are multiple forms of energy poverty. Traditionally, we've really, really focused on the financial form of energy poverty. Just can you even afford to use as much or are you you know, at risk of going into debt as you are covering your energy bills? But by showing that there is this you know, five to eight degree difference and when people even start to cool their homes, we are able to identify who's putting themselves at risk of heat-related illness, heat stroke. I mean, especially during heat waves, these are the people that we really want to make sure that they are able to consume as much um, energy that they need to actually cool their home to a safe indoor environment. And so I think that as we're moving forward with energy transition, one of the things that we hope that this work will do is remind us that the goal of energy justice and energy insecurity is getting back to you need to consume enough energy to make sure that you can adapt to climate change. And let's actually try to map out how much energy people need in order to keep themselves and their family healthy and safe and reduce their risk of mold, allergens, and heat-related deaths. With this, we hope that we can help utility companies identify who is at risk of heat stroke, who need who may need more infrastructure in their home. So one thing that we haven't even looked at right now, which we're currently doing, is looking at how much are people actually consuming once they start using their air conditioning units. And one thing to keep in mind with this gap in terms of when people start cooling their home is that it actually could be a lot wider than our analysis is showing because we know that high-income households are typically in very shaded areas. They have very energy-efficient windows. They have much better insulation. So the indoor temperature, in theory, would be a lot cooler than the average outdoor temperature. And we know that in low-income areas, they have less insulation, they have less shading, so it's going to feel hotter because that sun is beating in those windows. And they also typically live in higher concrete areas. So you're going to get that urban heat islanding effect where it's going to actually be a lot hotter because the concrete is going to release heat at night. So Catherine, I could 
imagine any number of ways you could use this information, weatherization programs, providing rebates for energy efficient air conditioning equipment, um, you know, community solar programs that people can sign up for for free and get get discounts on their electricity bill. What else comes to mind? Yeah, so just as a as a real comparison, this week this weekend I had to write comments to the Mississippi Powers Integrated Resource Plan. And one of the questions I had asked during the data discovery period was how many low income customers are, are your programs reaching? And the state of Mississippi has three million people and twenty one percent are considered low income. And of the people, which is the the way their program is set up, it's two hundred percent of the feather below two hundred percent of the federal poverty guideline. And the most people that they have served at the high water mark, which was before COVID, so COVID was an off year, was one thousand one hundred and thirty five people, which is under two percent of the qualifying customers for their low income programs. So just to tell you how there are states like this that desperately need help that have a lot of people living in poverty. And certainly that doesn't even tell you what the energy poverty or their energy burden is. That just tells you people that are living in poverty and how few of them are actually helped in that particular state's program. But I did reach out to Ariel Drehobel from ACEEE, who does a lot of work and research on equity issues. And she told me about a few utility programs that are interesting and do in coming at it from potentially much better ways. But there are three very different approaches. So one is Efficiency Vermont, which is the implementer of efficiency programs in that state. And they were using those income levels and energy use levels that Destiny was talking about, but now they're much more focused on burden. And they've developed sort of a targeted list of how, targeted set of programs depending on the needs of customers and, and how much intervention and assistance they need depending on what the energy use level is, what their level of poverty is, a lot of other markers and trying to be much more specific in how they help different types of customers. So that's in Vermont. The second state um, and program utility program is with DTE in Michigan. And what they do is they link, they call it the Payment Troubled Pilot Program. So they find customers that have that are on low-income payment schedules or those that are on a shutoff protection program because they're unable to pay their bills. And they say, well, maybe these people need some help making lowering the cost and the use of energy in their homes and buildings. And they target those customers to make sure that they link the inability to pay with the ability to get more energy efficiency and technology in their homes. So to me, that seems like a very targeted approach and different from Vermont. And then the third approach they said was ComEd. And ComEd has something called a distressed communities approach where they're looking at the whole community. So as Destiny was saying, communities can be very different in the way they're designed and the way they absorb heat or use energy. And so they take a full community approach where they try to make sure if full efficiency is brought into small businesses, that they can build wealth in the communities, that they, 
you know, create ownership programs and jobs, local jobs in those programs so that they tie not just residential, which is very important, but also not the non-residential component of being in areas that are also um, in poverty and low income. And so those were kind of three different utility programs. And there's certainly some best practices that she said you could use when you when you think about what kind of programs you want to design. You also really want to have state commissions and state leadership that are very supportive and that really make sure that you have both the structure and the funding available to implement these programs. I think that one thing we're also hoping it will do is help utility makers and policymakers think about different ways to tie in like a homeowner versus a renter versus like low income versus somebody who's may appear to be middle income, but maybe just house poor, because we do everything on gross income. It doesn't take into account the cost of living in that area. It doesn't take into account your mortgage or your rent or your food bills in in your area. And that is a big part of this poverty alleviation effort. One thing I really hope that it does is it helps us come up with more I would say, creative solutions. As we're moving forward, a lot of people have talked about using demand response to help balance out the variability of wind and solar and, you know, these demand curves. And typically what you hear of is you're going into a wealthy home, you're going to put a smart meter there, and in the summer, you're going to take their very comfortable home, so maybe they're at 60 degrees Fahrenheit inside, and you're going to make them a little bit more uncomfortable. So you maybe raise their temperature indoors to like 61 or 62 when you need to, you know, cut back on some energy usage. But one thing that we could do is go to these landlords and say, hey, you have a lot of housing stock, you got a lot of renters, you have a lot of people that are very uncomfortable in your home, in their homes, and we're going to have a lot of wind curtailment. So how about we go in, we put in some smart meters, and we take all these really uncomfortable homes, and we make them more comfortable. So now maybe they're keeping their thermostat at 80 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer, and we're going to lower it to like, you know, 78, 77, 75. And so now we're actually going to be balancing out the grid, but trying to keep everybody at this super stable level. And of course, we're going to have to make sure we do it equitably because you don't want to just, you know, ramp people's thermostats up and down. You want to provide them with some stability. Um, But there is this opportunity to actually say, hey, we know that you have been limiting your energy consumption. We know that you're putting yourself at risk of heat stroke in the summer and hyperthermia in the winter. So we have this program for this smart meter. We've convinced the landlord, if you're open, like, let's do it. Like, let's do this. We know the air conditioner is broken. Let's put in a more efficient one. And let's give you this package as we're moving forward um, with this energy transition. Let's turn now to how this may play out into an economy-wide decarbonization strategy. So I know you've modeled different grids around the world from New England to North Africa. And more recently, you started to look at, uh, I believe it was NREL decarbonization scenarios. Is that right? Yeah, the National Renewable Energy Lab's decarbonization model. And then you started modeling the different equity outcomes of those models from NREL. So what did you do? So what we did was we took in a bunch of scenarios that we've been hearing, you know, in the news, like the low carbon by 2035, low carbon by 2050, renewable energy 100% by 2050, renewable energy 100% by 2035. And we were just asking ourselves, well, what are the trade-offs between these different 
outcomes and these different, you know, pathways nationally. And what is going to happen if we wait until 2050 to get to the renewable energy 100%? Or, you know, what happens if we get there a lot sooner? What we do is we run NREL's national wide model. And, you know, it takes in things like wind speed, where the sun is, you know, how much energy people are going to use around the United States. And it basically tells you, okay, well, in order to meet this future level of electricity demand, here's the different types of power plants that you're going to need, and here's how much energy they're going to generate around the United States. So then what we do is we take that information and we calculate the air pollution emissions, so the carbon, uh, we calculate the CO2 emissions, the particulate matter, SOx, NOx, and we ask ourselves, okay, well, like, what is the regional distribution of these emissions and where are they concentrated? And so what we saw is that in our base case, so without a carbon policy, without any national level changes, in our base case, we were seeing levels of CO2 above 120 megatons um, of CO2 equivalent. But under the low carbon by 2035 case and the renewable 100% by 2035 case, all those emissions pretty much dropped between like... um, all those emissions pretty much dropped below 60 megatons of CO2 equivalent. So that's great, right? For national level policy, we've cut our emissions in half. But then we actually had to ask ourselves, well, where are these emissions going to be located? And how is that going to change across the demographics of people? Are the low-income people always the ones that are going to be the worst off? You know, or are we actually getting more equitable under these different decarbonization policies? So what we did was on top of the National Renewable Energy Lab's national level map, we calculated the median income distribution as well as the energy burden distribution and levels of poverty. And then we mapped the emissions by income group and by poverty group. And one of the interesting things that we saw was that under the base case, so without a carbon policy, the highest income group, their average per capita emissions were around um, 15 megatons of CO2 equivalent per person. But then the lowest income group, they had roughly 30 megatons of CO2 equivalent per person um, in 2050, right? So that's without a carbon policy. So then in the renewable energy 100% by 2035 case, everyone actually ended up being below 10 megatons of CO2 equivalent per capita. But the lowest income group had almost 10 times the emissions as the highest income group. So there's still this disparity under the National Renewable Energy Lab's model. And so one of the big kind of out, outcomes of that work and our big takeaway is that you need to make sure that equity is actually driving the way that you're making these power plant investment decisions if you want to make sure that everybody is at an equal playing field because letting the economics and the cost drive it does not guarantee that everyone will be at the same playing field. What makes up that disparity? Why is there that disparity? Oh, so one of the reasons for that disparity is going to be the storage Some people forget that energy storage can be very carbon intensive. If you're using compressed air energy storage, what you're doing is you're using like a coal plant or a natural gas plant to actually compress air down into a cavern. And then you're going to release that air up and it's going to turn a turbine and send electricity to the grid. But that is very CO2 intensive. So then how do we take this and turn it into something action oriented? Like what does it mean for construction of policy? So with construction of policy, I think the big thing that we're hoping to show is 
what are the trade-offs between different decarbonization scenarios? You're going to have, you know, people in one camp saying like, no, renewable energy has to be done by 2035. You're going to have people in another camp saying, no, we have to do the low carbon by 2035. And people sometimes don't even know what exactly they're arguing about. And we would like to just let people have better arguments. Like if you're going to fight tooth and nail over these different decarbonization options and the different national level policy, we want to just make sure that people actually know, like, what are you arguing for and what are going to be the different outcomes? And then the other side of it is if you want an equitable energy transition, you need to know what type of equity you're looking for because there's so many different levels. It's are we trying to get everybody below a certain level of CO2 and we don't really care the, about the relative, you know, how you are compared to your neighbor after that? Or is it, hey, we want you and your neighbor to have absolutely the same air quality no matter where you are in the United States, right? And like, that's a big question that we have to ask ourselves too. So with this work, we want to make sure that people understand that just decarbonizing the electricity sector isn't going to mean that we reach an equitable future. Yes, we can reach a sustainable future by lowering our national level emissions, but in order to reach an equitable future, we need to understand what the disparities are between different groups of people and how that's impacted by where we're investing in technologies. Destiny, would it be helpful in a utility planning process to make sure that not just percentage greenhouse gas emission reduction or by a certain date is included, but that metrics about public health and air quality and poverty are all embedded into the cost benefits analysis, because then what you will be driven by is the best outcome for every person. Right. Yeah, I think that that is completely true. Because as utilities and different communities are thinking about which power plants to retire when, which one should we do first? You know, you could retire the largest power plants and, you know, hopefully you're going to, you know, tackle the most amount of people that way. You could also retire power plants at different points of the community. So maybe there's five small power plants near one low income or, you know, African-American community that's really causing a lot of health impacts. And so there's these different ways to address this energy transition. And we really do need to think about how we're retiring plants as we're moving forward and how we are investing in new technologies, too. So going back to the premise of my uh, original opening, I said that a decarbonization strategy is kind of a de facto justice strategy or equity strategy, but it sounds like you don't necessarily think that's the case. So I will say that I do think that decarbonization leads to better energy justice outcomes compared to our base case, because we're always better off than our base case in all of the scenarios that we've run, no matter what decarbonization scenario that we use. I just am saying that not all decarbonization scenarios are created equally. And if we're going to fight about which one to pursue and which one is the best, we really need to know what are we trading off with? Where are we winning and losing? Um, one of the things that was very surprising to us is by decarbonizing, right, everybody is getting lower CO2 emissions. That's great for global warming, good for the people. <laughs> but when we actually looked at the co-pollutants, so like particulate matter, for example, which we know leads to higher rates of asthma, right, um, childhood mortality, we actually saw that PM emissions over the life cycle of the energy system was increasing over time as we started to decarbonize. And it's because we had that combination of coal and solar 
being generated in our models and solar panels to create can be very um, emission intensive. And we actually found that looking at the USNDC in our base case, we didn't actually have that much savings on the PM emission side. But in terms of like the low carbon, the renewable energy 100%, once you really retired that coal plant, you were pretty much golden um, for reducing emissions. And by 2050, you were having all of your renewable energy plans and your low carbon plan being around the same um, in terms of the benefits for particulate matter. But your low carbon, it had a little bit higher levels of particulate matter and the regional distributions were looking so different. So not everything's created equally. And I think that we need to understand better what about the other emissions that aren't necessarily so focused on, you know, the global warming effect, but actually the local health effects of the people that are going to be living near these power plants. Fascinating. I think someone needs to hire you to create a new version of SimCity or a new like energy equity board game or something. (laughs) We actually do have some (laughs) board games going in my class, but that's probably another discussion on this show. (laughs) let's go to free electrons now uh catherine what do you got this week yeah so while i run lord's solar power song in the background i'm going to be reading a report by acor um the american council on renewable energy that is titled expectations for renewable energy finance in 2021 to 2024 and it's kind of growing confidence in the aftermath of the pandemic so what they did was they just they looked at investors and developers to try to figure out how is investment going what is it predicted to to do in the coming years now that we're we're starting to recover from covid and it it did recrete decrease about 12 percent um primarily because of um lower financing in onshore wind sector, and that was in 2020. But it really does look like confidence is increasing that two thirds of surveyed investors said that they would increase their investments and developers as well wanted to continue. So to me, it was just hopeful that there will still be financing for renewable energy projects at scale and uh, that the investor and developer communities are, are really looking to come back strong. And I think that benefits everybody. Destiny, what's your free electron? So one of the things that I have been following recently is this Bitcoin cryptocurrency craziness that's been going on <laughs> in the you know, Twitter space. And, you know, Elon Musk is, you know, against Bitcoin. Then all of a sudden he's supporting Bitcoin as long as it's um, as long as it's environmentally friendly. And one of the things I'm excited about is this company called Devio, which is trying to create a cryptocurrency for environmental good and social justice. And what they have been doing is using blockchain to track data and information. And so what they want to do is create this kind of sphere of tracking for companies that say, hey, I'm doing environmental justice and I'm helping the environment, they're going to be able to track that data and verify, did it actually go to what you said it's going to go to? And so I'm really excited that this could potentially actually hold companies accountable. It actually sets us up for tracking like carbon emissions reductions, because if you have the data from the power plant, you have the demand response, and you can actually connect those households and actually track that data of, well, how much energy did the demand response reduce? What time did it reduce it at? You know, is that how is that connected to the different power plants? So I'm really excited to see what Devio does with their blockchain and actually trying to design a cryptocurrency space where the actual currency would be tied to social justice and social good and environmental sustainability. Yeah. Uh, cryptocurrency aside, I'm still 
super curious about how the blockchain will inevitably get implemented in energy products and in energy trading. I think that the excitement over blockchain in the energy space has waned a bit, but to me, it still offers a lot of really interesting potential. Speaking of cryptocurrency, I saw that yet another major energy company was hacked and they did not pay a cryptocurrency ransom, but it sounds like a bunch of private data was stolen and we'll see if it turns into some kind of a hostage situation. That company is Invenergy, which is one of the biggest renewable energy developers. Of course, many weeks back, the um, the, the colonial pipeline was uh, frozen for many days. It completely cut off fuel supplies throughout the southeast gas stations ran out of gas and that was because um this ransomware attacker shut down the pipeline and then they paid you know nearly five million dollars in cryptocurrency to bring the pipeline back on this is just happening to companies across the board it's a because of the cryptocurrency boom it's enabled a lot of this um hacking and and um ransomware attacks and so Invenergy is now a renewable energy company that's been afflicted by this. And if you are an energy company with major holdings, a utility, uh, a project developer, if you are not thinking about this, then you are already five steps behind. Everybody should be preparing for, for this world, this new world. Anyway, I think that's going to close the show. Dr. Destiny Nock, thanks for joining us. Really good to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Catherine, always fun. It was great. This was a great guest. Love chatting with Destiny. This is the Energy Gang. Thanks for being here. If you want to comment on Destiny's research, on our conversation, hit us up on Twitter. You can find all of us there and the Energy Gang feed. And give us a rating review anywhere you get your shows. We are a production of Postscript Audio, and we will catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. 